Welcome to the Bridget and Josh Show. I'm Bridget. And I'm Josh. And this is the show where we talk about stuff we think young Catholics should care about. And this week we think you should care about the election results. Yeah, it's been a hot minute. Um, I hate that phrase, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's been a hot minute, Bridget, since mm-hmm. the election and since uh, we did our final countdown uh, episode. Mm-hmm. Um, all the results are in. The uh, writs have been returned to the Governor General and um, the parliament's, uh, the new parliament sitting is not too far away. Absolutely. As always, things did not go to plan and so we were not able to do a debrief episode as quickly as we thought, but now is the moment where we get to see how wrong I was and how right Josh was in our predictions of Election Day results. Something like that. So, yeah. So, uh, before we get into it, what's been happening, Bridget? What's making news for you in your life at the moment? In my life, I've had all sorts of things going on. Um, I went to Darwin... I had the plenary council oh. going to Melbourne on Saturday just to hang out. Awesome. Um, I finished a semester of uni. I managed to get enrolled in my next semester of uni, which is always quite a process, as people yeah, who know me know. <laughs> There's so many forms. Um, anyway, but I've also not been as impacted by the change of government as I thought. Ooh. Because where I work, they've declared themselves... Mog proof. Wow. So if you don't know what a mog is... I have no idea. Tell tell us. Tell us all, Bridget. <laughs> I will tell absolutely everyone. Um, it means like the machinations of government ah. and the machinery of government. So it's like how the government actually works for people. It's mostly affecting the executive branch okay. of government. As we know, we have three branches, mm-hmm. the legislative, the judiciary, and the executive. So the executive of the... Like, public service and one of the very dramatic things that happens every election but particularly after a complete change of government is the public sector is thrown into absolute chaos because everyone decides to declare new departments yeah and different versions of things new departments and new logos that's the way it goes yeah absolutely they're like "Mm, let's smush these ones together let's separate these ones and it is always total chaos but where i work they were like, we've actually done a really great job at making ourselves mug-proof, so we shouldn't be too impacted by the change of government. Wonderful. So, yeah, yes, I was like, we're amazing. Um, Yes, so that has been happening in my world. What about right. you, Josh? Well, uh, I've uh, been on the road, kind of, uh, the last little while. So, similar to you, I finished a semester of uni, my last uh, coursework semester after wow. what feels like 15 millennia, but I think it was just about 12 years of uni, which is still a long time. Mm-hmm. Um I have had recently, I've had the depressing realisation there are some people who started uni who were 10 years younger than me and they finished before me, which um, anyway, you can talk to my psychologist about that. No, I'm kidding. But um, so that's exciting. So that's been good. And I've I've started working on my minor thesis, uh, which I'm sure we'll be able to talk about at a later date, hopefully. Um, And I've been up and around Canberra and Sydney 
uh, off and on for the last sort of four or five weeks, Mm -hmm. um, doing a whole lot of different things, having a bit of a holiday. And I had my eight-day retreat in preparation for for my ordination to the diaconate, which is coming up in September. So exciting. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Uh, and yeah, just here in Canberra then, and likewise, I'm also going to Melbourne on the weekend. So going back home and getting stuck into my study and getting ready for ordination and all that sort of stuff. So it's been busy, but it's been good. Absolutely. Hilariously, Josh sent me a message and was like, hi, I'm excited. We're going to be in Canberra for ages and we should do a bunch of podcast recording. And I was like, wow, those are almost the exact dates that I will not be in Canberra. So yeah. I'm glad that we've managed to have a bit of a crossover yeah, moment. Yeah, well, I just chucked a tantrum and Bridget was just sick of me complaining, so she made time <laughs> for me in her very, very busy schedule. So um, very gracious is Bridget uh, Cooney, Bridget from Bean. So speaking of Bean, yeah. uh, we had said it's been a while. That's terrible. But it's let's crack into the election. So I might just run through... Um, What's this? Oh, this, oh, oh, sorry. I found the screenshot of me predicting the election. We'll get to that a little bit later. But let's go to the actual results. So, so what actually happened? Yeah. So we had the election. So mm-hmm. just to uh, as a bit of a refresher, so it was a full House and half Senate election, mm-hmm. which is what most elections are. So this means that every single house, every single house, no, <laughs> every, every house, wow, every house in Canberra was up for sale. No. <laughs> Um, Absolute chaos. Uh, every seat in the House of Representatives and half of the seats in the Senate plus, or for the, the half of the state seats in the Senate plus mm-hmm. the four seats that belong to the two territories were uh, declared vacant, uh, and elections were held to fill those. Mm. Uh, so, in terms of the House of Representatives, lower house, the Labor Party achieved majority government just, so they won seventy-seven seats. Uh, the coalition won 58 seats, so that's, a, that's the Liberals, the National Party, the LNP. And this is the fascinating thing. Mm. There were 16 crossbench MPs elected. Ten were independents, four were members for the Greens. One was Rebecca Sharkey, who is nominally called what they call Centre Alliance. She's the only remaining MP, I think, across the House and the Senate. Oh. And Bob Catter for Catter's Australian Party up in the far north of Queensland. So that what that represents is for the coalition, they overall they had an overall loss of nineteen seats. Wow. Um, so that was a pretty big whack. Mm. Um, and that was in a whole range of areas, so that was pretty significant. The Labor Party picked up nine seats, uh, which was just enough. They needed mm-hmm. eight to be able to form majority government. They just got over the line. Um, and there were seven in- new independents elected. And we'll talk a bit about that, uh, where they are and what that means and that sort of yeah. stuff. So that's the lower house. In terms of the Senate. Juicy Senate results. Yeah, again, very interesting. Uh, so what we saw was that the Liberal National Coalition, they returned... 15 senators mm-hmm. in addition to the 17 that were already in parliament that w- that their term lasts until the next election, so which means they have 32 senators. The Labor Party returned 15 in addition to their 11, which has means they have 26 senators in the Senate rather than them being anywhere else, I suppose. The Greens uh, elected six on top of their returning six, so that's a new record for them. They've got 12 senators, so wow, it's the first time they've won... Uh, a seat in every state and territory across both um, both classes of, of, of the Senate. So mm-hmm. that's 12. And um, Pauline Hanson was returned uh, in addition to her uh, fellow One Nation colleagues. So there's two of them now. Um, and then United Australia, David Pocock uh, and Jackie Lambie, uh, Jackie Lambie Network, all one seat. So Jackie Lambie now has two uh, senators and the others just have one. And so that... 
is a total of 40 seats filled for a total of 76 seats in the Senate. Um, and so that means that the government doesn't have the Labor Party, the new Labor government, they don't have a majority in the Senate. They mm-hmm. uh, they can get to a majority if they if, if they uh, make a bit of a voting block with the Greens and David Pocock or Jackie Lambie's two senators and different th- things like that. So, yeah. yeah, that's the state of play. Exciting. Yeah. Dynamic. I would say, for me, unexpected, mostly because I got my prediction wrong and I yeah. said that there would be a minority Labor government. They got more than I thought they would. But I think it's also quite surprising. Oh, well, I guess not surprising, but it's um, very telling, I suppose, the results that we've had in the Senate and in the House of Reps about how much Australia has changed over the past couple of years yeah. and also what we're looking forward to in the future. Yeah, and um, I mean, gloating isn't befitting for anyone, but I did kind of pick it, which I am mm-hmm. very sort of chuffed with myself for. Good to know that I'm good at something, right? So. Uh, I have been showing anyone who will uh, let me <laughs> th- thrust my phone into their face to show them that uh, I sent a, a text message to a friend of mine on the 8th of May um, saying I was thinking more likely that the ALP would win between 72 and 80 seats, the coalition would win less than 60 and the independents would, uh, the actual independent MPs, not the Greens, but just the independents mm-hmm. would have between 5 and 10. So I was pretty much spot on. And obviously in our... In our um, our last in the final countdown episode, yeah. I mentioned the fact that I thought the Greens would pick up a couple of seats uh, in some inner city areas as well. So that's, I guess, it's nice to know that I'm good at something. So that was sort of felt very chuffed with myself <laughs> uh, the morning after. I did spend the first two and a half hours on election night after the vote started coming in, thinking, "What the heck is going on? None mm. of it's making sense." And if if you watched it on election night, you would see that Anthony Green and all the other. Um, number crunters across the networks, they were all in a very similar place. It took a long time for the dust to kind of settle and the narrative of what had happened on election night to settle in because you saw, um, you know, like we saw in Sydney, unexpected numbers of, of Liberal Party MPs on the North Shore and, mm. and basically around the harbour losing their seats. Um, you know, Wentworth, McKellar, Warringah Waring- was already lost, North Sydney. Uh, even and Bradfield looked close at some point that Bradfield might also go, but there's... Now there's four the four sort of Heartland Liberal Party seats uh, around the harbour in Sydney, all represented by independents. So that's a massive shift. Mm. Um, down in Melbourne, down where I am, Josh Frydenberg lost, uh, Tim Wilson lost, um, you know, and so uh, Katie Allen lost, and so independents and the Labour Party now represent you know classical Heartland Liberal Party mm. seats. So it's really fascinating. It's a really interesting. Um, outcome, you know, so yeah. I, I can sort of be like, oh, I predicted it and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of it actually coming true, what that means is actually very, very different from just saying, oh, here's a rough number of the seats that they might yeah. get and that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Absolutely. There was also big changes in Queensland too, particularly in the city of Brisbane. Yeah. Um, they had a big sweep for the Greens, which is really interesting because um, I think a lot of people felt that that was unexpected and that it showed a big shift from um, – where people were at at the last election to where they are now. Yeah, and we spoke about that, didn't we? The fact that the Labor Party only held six of the seats um, in Queensland of however many seats they had, mm. and they were very much outnumbered. Um, and, you know, Queensland has often been held up as this bastion of conservative politics in Australia, um, especially up in the north. You know, mm. if you look at the influence of the Nationals in the Coalition Party room, You've got really strong conservative voices who are very strong on, well, I guess very not strong on things like climate change yeah. um, and things like that. 
And then all of a sudden you have these three Green MPs winning the inner city of mm. Brisbane, Kevin Rudd's old seat uh, being one of them. Um, it's fascinating. And, I, and I, I remember looking at it the week before and thinking this could actually happen. You know, mm. you just – you get a feeling. You, you look at – you know, you pick things up and you read sort of polling data and that sort of stuff and, yeah. you, and you think, oh, this could happen. You think, oh, but – Surely in Queensland, mm. you know, and so and sure, there's demographical shifts that are happening all the time, and, and there's a whole lot of, of that sort of data which sort of backs up that this was for some people this made a whole lot of sense that it would happen. But I think in the wash up, what became really clear um, that say compared to say the Victorian Greens who have really not made any inroads apart mm. from Melbourne, where you would really expect them to be picking up things uh, seats like Wills, um, Cooper, McNamara. Um, those sort of inner city, you know, inner north, inner south, you know, around Chapel Street, yep. um, Thornbury, Collingwood, Fitzroy. I mean, Fitzroy is in Melbourne, but um, you would expect that some of that expansion to happen. I mean, Ban's been in in Melbourne since for twelve years now, and there hasn't yeah. his personal vote's grown, but in terms of how that's expanded out, hasn't really made that that sort mm. of impact. Um, whereas, really, what you just saw in Queensland, from what in Brisbane, from what. Uh, all the stories say is that these are people just they just pounded the pavement they knocked on every door mm. they door knocked they listened to local issues and really ran on uh, advocating for issues that are affecting you know younger people and progressive leaning people in uh, in in the city of Brisbane and they just convinced enough people that they deserved to they deserved to go yeah so it's really kind of it's amazing to see how they were able to have that focus to do kind of what they say Victor- the Victorian Greens and, you know, the progressive bastion of, 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 of you know, of Australia couldn't mm-hmm. do. It's, really, it's, a fasc- it's a really fascinating sort of narrative, really. Absolutely. And I think it shows a lot about um, the impact of those kind of grassroots level movements of people where it's like if you actually just connect with one person, then it really can grow from there for whatever kind of thing you're talking to them about. But that everybody's vote does count, Mm. which means that if you're able to connect with one person and convince them to use their vote in the way that you agree with, then it can actually make this massive ripple effect. Um, Yeah, like no one is lost in it. And I think it's very easy, especially with such big numbers, to be like, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. It'll go whichever way it goes. But those kind of um, on-the-ground, door-knocking, having connections with people has actually a massive difference and we can see it in the numbers like I'm sure each of those people might not have thought that that's how things were going to go they were like oh well you know maybe I'll just use my vote this way but really if everyone decides to do that it's a massive sweep so it's very interesting it'll be a lot to kind of unpack and unpick over the next couple of years I think as we look at what Australia wants Mm. in different areas because Australia is massive and diverse and the whole point is that not everyone agrees and that's why we have all of these different, you know, representatives. But I think it's very telling that um, that there has been those swings in such different areas. Yeah. yeah, and so – and I think just one last bit on this point is that when you look at the primary vote data, the, the where – people put their first vote was a lot of it wasn't for either of the major parties. Mm. Um, they got less combined. They got less than about, they probably got around about two thirds, just over maybe just under two thirds of the vote. So a third of Australians chose to vote for someone who wasn't a Labor or Liberal or, you know, Labor or Coalition candidate with their first vote. And obviously that flows down and, and just the system that we have, you know, the two party preferred and whatnot. And we spoke with, we spoke about that during the yeah. campaign. Um you know, it was fascinating. It was kind of infuriating, but also fascinating seeing 
all these political journalists who you would hope would probably know better, saying in the campaign, well, Labor can't win with a, with a primary vote lower than 38%. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one, they did. And two, um, you don't get elected on the primary vote. You get elected on a preferential system mm-hmm. and preferential voting. So that was just kind of dumb. But, but, you know, this whole thing that we're dealing with, a whole new way of how politics might be happening in Australia, which is really fascinating. So um, was there any seats that you were caught or any results that you were really interested in or that sort of stood out for you? I thought it was really interesting the way that places that I didn't expect to change did change. So mm-hmm. places like some of those spots in Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane, that really felt like they were, um, what did you say, bastions of yeah, yeah. <laughs> of a particular party. Yeah. Um, the way that they actually did change. And I think it's interesting because it shows that um, our communities have changed a lot Mm. because you don't just get voted by one person. You get voted by a community and by the way that that community has decided to move. Um, It is really interesting the role that independents have had in Canberra in particular and especially when you were talking about primary vote, that reminded me a lot about how long it took to count all of the Canberra votes because Mm. that was a massive thing here. We had um, a couple of strong independents who um, were campaigning here. And that became a real, a really big thing in the ACT part of this election mm. was um, the role of independents and how that was going to impact the votes, um, which it did. It did have a massive impact. So, yeah, I think um, it shows a lot about how our community is changing and how our understanding of and response to politics is changing, mm. that we can see that not putting a major party as a primary vote does still str- send a really strong message because, like, we got heaps of stuff from everybody being mm. like, here's stuff you need to know about how independents work. And you're like, oh, okay, like, they're clearly a bit spooked. <laughs> like yeah. that. And I think that was happening all over the country. Yeah. You could see it everywhere that everyone was a little bit, that major parties were a little bit spooked mm. by um, the way that independents and minor parties were wielding their power during this election. Yeah, and I think um, what comes from that is that the possibility that now is, has been shown that independents can actually get elected in a whole lot of places where they hadn't previously been thought possible. Yeah. So, you know, Kuyong is a good example. You know, the former seat of Robert Menzies, Josh Frydenberg, always flagged as a future prime minister and, and you know, he was going to be, you know, he was the odds-on favourite to be the next leader of the Liberal Party if he mm. survived. Um, all of a sudden, it's won by an independent. You know, David Pocock... Uh, for the first time, wins the Senate seat here in the ACT as an independent. Yeah. Uh, never before has it not been Labor liberal. Mm. Um, so that's really this the what, and I'm going to be really fascinated to see in future elections and even state elections now as this goes forward. Mm-hmm. People sort of re- realizing that seats actually can't be taken for granted anymore, and they can't yes. just be assumed to fall into a certain category. That we're seeing big swings in different seats that. Surely we hadn't thought possible, mm-hmm. um, and it's actually shown that people aren't satisfied just to stay with um, with the narrative that tends to exist, whether that's in the political class or the journalistic class, whatever it is, that they're mm-hmm. willing to actually push back and go, you know what, this is actually the destiny of our seat, I suppose, is in our hands, and we actually can do something about it. Yeah. One of the seats that I that's kind of is true to this fact was Fowler in mm-hmm. um, in southwest Sydney, so. That was famously where Christina Keneally was parachuted in by uh, by uh, the Labor Party to stand there in what was Chris Hayes' seat. He had 
previously wanted to back Tu Lei, who was um, a local uh, Labour Party branch member, a Vietnamese background in Cabramatta, which is sort of the heart of Cabramatta and Fairfield, the heart of, of Fowler. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably the largest Vietnamese community in Australia. Um, and so Dai Lee uh, decided to run as an independent. She had the backing of Frank Car- Carboni, who is the former Labour uh, Labour aligned, mm-hmm. but he's currently still the mayor of Fairfield. Um, and, you know, and, and Labour thought, okay, well, we put Christina Keneally in. And she really wasn't a good fit for the electorate. She yeah. lived on Scotland Island, um, which is in the Pitwater Bay, which is about 90 kilometres um, from Fowler. It's mm-hmm. a private island. You need to catch a boat to get to your house. Like it's, whereas, you know, Fowler's mid to lower socioeconomic area, mm-hmm. large levels of large, number, uh, large uh, amounts of public housing, all that sort of stuff. Um, largely multicultural, mm-hmm. and the Labour Party tried running the scene that Christina Keneally was an immigrant too, and it was just a yeah. bit of a, it's a pretty terrible campaign. And, and you saw in the last few days that Albo went and visited, and you thought, okay, mm-hmm. well they're getting some numbers that are showing that she's in trouble, and she yeah. lost. She lost pretty comfortably. Uh, Dai Lee won, won about, about fifty-two to forty-eight thereabouts, mm-hmm. and so here you have again uh, what had always been a Labour Party seat now is held by a independent, but an independent who used to be a member of the Liberal Party, yeah. uh, is quite conservative and, and wouldn't it doesn't fit into the teal independent narrative of where you saw that win in a whole lot of mm-hmm. other seats. So, again, it's another example of parties not being able to take these seats for granted, that they don't belong to these parties mm. um, and that really should be putting up candidates who represent and who actually are who those electorates would want to vote for. Because if they don't, well, they're not going to get elected and that's what Dai Lee has shown. Absolutely, because it also shows the real disconnect between leaders and people who are like up here being like oh let's make these decisions about people's lives and what's actually happening on the ground like how completely inappropriate to try and yeah. put Christina Keneally in that seat like it just shows that they were making a lot of assumptions about yeah. her and about her capacity to represent that um that community and a lot of assumptions about that community that they would be comfortable with her representing them yeah. like that I think really shows um yeah how much of a misstep you can take yeah. when you are disconnected from the communities and from the people that you're meant to be representing yeah for sure and so so i guess the election happened we've mm-hmm. got new prime minister new yep. cabinet pm albo um i'm not going to run through the whole cabinet but um <laughs> you know and so what's been what's happened what's happened since then what's what's been going on in the, in the six weeks since the election well, it had a very quick swearing-in ceremony um, and there was a big sign at Government House being yeah. like, uh, no entry without invitation. And I was like, ooh, what's going to happen? And then I was like, oh, wait, yeah, we need to sign in a Prime <laughs> Minister. <laughs> um, anyway, that was just a bit of drama as we yeah, were yeah. driving past. Um, but the reason that they had to do that very quickly and they didn't sign in the entire cabinet on that mm-hmm. very first signing-in moment, um, they signed in a couple of key people so that way... Albo and Penny Wong could go to the... Was it the G20 they went G20? to? I feel like it was the G20 somewhere. There's been that many trips. You can There's talk about been, that later. But yeah. yeah. So to some big international thing, I'm yeah. pretty sure it was the G20, mm. which was crazily timed for mm. the Australian election. Um, so it was like the day after or something. Um, so they just had to wait until they got enough votes to yeah. see that there would be the potential for a majority. So even when um, Albanese was signed in as Prime Minister, 
they hadn't fully locked in that there would be yeah well a, no, and no seats had been declared yeah so it's you know that's a whole other civics yes. lesson but yeah <laughs> but they had to be sure that the Labor Party would be able to negotiate mm. the power balance mm. and that was enough for yeah. um. Anthony Albanese to be signed in as Prime Minister. Anyway, then he jets off mm. and starts doing lots of big things in the international community, which has so far been a theme of his past, yeah. his first couple of weeks of Prime Minister. He has been bouncing around, so has Penny Wong, so has a couple other key people around the globe. Um, kind of, it feels like this trying to reset Australia's yeah. image in the mm. international community, which is very interesting. And I'm interested to see the role that that plays in the rest of their term of government. Um and what that shows about the impacts of the past nine years under a coalition government, because we aren't separated from our past just because there's a new government. It actually is entirely impacted by the past decade, because what a decade it's been. Like, yeah. in, a lot has happened and a lot has changed, but a lot mm. has stayed the same. So that has been one of the big things that Albanese has been doing in yeah. his early days of prime ministership, has been kind of trying to reset Australia's profile on the international stage. Hmm. Yeah, and a very interesting little quirky fact is at the moment, Penny Wong, Richard, Penny Wong and uh, Anthony Albanese are both at the Pacific Islands Forum, mm-hmm. which I think is happening in the Solomons, um, somewhere in the Pacific Islands, which would make sense because it's the Pacific Islands Forum. But yeah. uh, And Richard Miles is in, is in America. He's, doing, uh, he's attending a few things. He's made some speeches and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And so uh, Alba is the Prime Minister, Miles is the Deputy Prime Minister, and Penny Wong is the Foreign Minister, and they're all out of the country, which means that the next minister who is sworn in after them becomes the acting prime minister, and that's Jim Chalmers. So Jim mm. Chalmers, uh, since yesterday and probably until they all get back, he's the acting prime minister. Um, so I think it, it meant that we had three prime ministers in three days. Yes. Um, <laughs> but they're acting, so I don't think it counts on the numbers. But yeah, um, but yeah first uh, Queensland prime minister since Kevin Rudd, ironically. So um, probably slightly different, but that's another whole other conversation. So um, and just on the flip side for the Liberal Party, um, so obviously Scott Morrison lost the election, he's resigned, and mm-hmm. and Josh Frydenberg lost his seat, so he wasn't really able to be like, I want to be the leader. Yes. Uh, well, he could have, but he just wasn't possible. So, um, which meant that Peter Dutton was elected unopposed, uh, and Susan Lee was uh, elected as his deputy. Mm. Um, so again, first time in a while that we've had a leader from the Queensland for the Liberal Party. Might have been the first time. Might be the first time ever. I'm not sure, but surely not. Surely not ever. Yeah, he's from uh, he's from up in near Bribie Island, I think, ah. up in the north. Uh, and Susan Lay, who her seat uh, is centred on on Albury, but goes out to some of the south southwestern parts mm-hmm. of of New South Wales. So they're the new leadership uh, team. Um, I think he's on holidays at the moment, which is sort of funny, and haven't really heard much. So and that's mm. that's sort of to be expected when you've got a, a new prime minister. It's all very exciting and it's very hard. Um, for there to be cut through. Uh, an example of that is Angus Taylor, who's the new shadow treasurer. He'd mm-hmm. previously the energy and climate minister. Um, he had he had a, I guess what you could call a press conference, uh, talking about something, and he said, any questions? And no one said anything, so he walked ah. off because I think it was just him and a, a couple of cameramen. So I yep. uh, probably shouldn't have asked her questions just to save face there. But mm-hmm. uh, So, yeah, so that's sort of the state of play. It's interesting too because, like, after a, such a big change of government, it really takes the opposition time to recoup from that, to really do some internal searching about what that means. Like the Labor Party has had to do that after the past several mm. elections. So it's um, it's not unexpected for whoever the opposition is to be taking a bit of time during the early days of a new government yeah. or of a government of any kind um, to be 
looking at themselves, looking at the election results and having a good long think about what that means for them. For sure. And I think that's... And the interesting thing for the Liberal Party is the last time the Labor Party won with Kevin Rudd coming in, they actually didn't really have... Well, it's not that they didn't have the time. They were in opposition for six years. Mm. But the reality was that pretty quickly, uh, Brendan Nelson was rolled by Malcolm Turnbull, um, and then there was Utegate and all that sort of stuff. And so they were still just trying to flounder, but they never really took the time. And then pretty quickly, the wheels started falling off the right government. Mm. Uh, within three years, obviously, he's replaced by Julie Gillard. Minority government happens, and then all the stuff with the, the carbon tax, the mining tax, and the Labor Party, the Labor government was on the rope. And so what that meant, rather than taking the time to stop and reflect, and because um, Tony Abbott was such an effective opposition leader, mm. They kind of went in for the for the kill, really, and they really so did. didn't have. It was the, felt, the feeling was, well, we actually don't need to reinvent ourselves and learn from this lesson because the government's kind of doing the job for us. Yeah. Um, and so, and I, what I think that meant is, you really didn't see the, the Liberal Party really learn much mm. necessarily. They still won elections after it, but I think what you, there's a, probably an argument you made now is that they're reaping uh, that at the moment. They're reaping what they've sowed in the sense that they didn't have that chance to to review themselves. Um, and so they're probably really a bit stale that they haven't really had that chance for, you know, for 15 or, or more years to really think, okay, well, where where do we go in the future? That had started to happen, but just with how what went down with Kevin Rudd and Julie Gillard and all that sort of stuff, that the, the brakes were kind of put on that process. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to, interesting to see, will the Liberal Party go on that journey where they have a long post-mortem and really wrestle with how do we win back the the inner city uh, affluent areas which are kind of our historical base do we need to win them back uh we've well, got 60 seats you need uh, another 15 to win and i'm not sure where you're going to get it if yeah. you don't win those seats back so it's going to be a really interesting um journey for them i think to figure out okay well how do we how do we respond to this how do we remake ourselves and learn the lessons and you know all the cliches that they tend to roll out you know yes. the people have spoken and we need to heed what they've said and mm. yada 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 but um and that's important but it'd be interesting to see how they how they navigate that so um what are you looking forward to now we've got a new government mm-hmm. um what are your hopes uh, for this new government or for the new parliament or um whatever you know a combination of the two or none of it? No, hopefully it's something. But you know, what, what is, what's something you're looking forward to or hoping to, to see addressed or whatnot? I've got a lot of big hopes for this government. I think any kind of change um, shakes people and that it's important that that momentum goes in the right directions. I think it's really interesting what you're saying about there being like a bunch of acting prime ministers all in a row. And I think that shows a lot about the kind of team mentality mm. and the communal mentality that – the Labour government seems to be bringing into this era of themselves, um, which I think is important. Um, And I think it's important to channel that well, instead of it just being like, I'm the Prime Minister, I'm on top of everything, and I make all the decisions. Like, I think it's um, the way that they did, especially that initial swearing in, where it was like, it wasn't just Albanese. I mean, because it it can't just have been, like, you can't just sign in Prime Minister. Uh, But the people that he chose and who he selected to be his... um, cabinet ministers and his kind of core team i think that's very indicative of what the future might hold so um that gives me a lot of hope that it's not just hanging on one person because i think we've seen in the past when it hangs on one personality and if that personality has any kind of cracks as we always do it can tumble pretty quickly so um, i think i'm interested to see how that works in governance like what is that Mm. actually gonna impact um, I hope that they take the strong message that 
young people and um, that all of those like teals and the rise of the greens and other independence has because we can't look at the way that the Labour Party won government without looking at who Mm. they won government against. Um, It can't be in isolation. I think it's really important that they take the strong message that people have been sending about climate, about the needs of young people, about mental health stuff, like about all of these other big issues that everyone was really talking about in the election. I think, um, like you were saying, there needs to be introspection even when you win. Mm. Um, So I'm really looking forward to the potential that has, I guess. Like, I wonder how it's actually going to go, but I am really hopeful that they will be um, attentive to that, that they will do stronger action on climate than maybe what they were elected for because they're going to read the room Mm. and read what everyone else has been saying. Um, Also, because that's important to me and I think it's important as a government to be a leader in that and I think that message is becoming stronger every day. What are you hopeful for, Josh? Yeah, I think... um I think for me, like I, it feels like there's a new energy around the government. I, I one of my criticisms of the of the previous government is that it did feel a bit tired and stale. I didn't I didn't see a lot of hope and planning for the future. I mean, I didn't see much of a vision cast from the Labor Party either necessarily. But um, you know, I th- I think um, hopefully there's a bit of a new impetus around things. So um, and so for some of those more traditionally strong Labor Party values, so I'd love to see some um, some good stuff on uh, the, the NDIS. Mm. and looking at getting some of the issues around that sorted out. I'd love to see some things about health, about education, how that can be taken forward and, and really advanced in a way which uh, is engaging dignity of the human person mm-hmm. and common good and solidarity but, solidarity, but especially subsidiarity in a way which would, you know, that good local decisions can be made locally. I think that's really important. Um, but also, and this is something I've, I've been disappointed in so far, uh, is that Labor would actually be able to stand up for the, for the little guy. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there's what's been disappointing, I think, um, is that there's not a willingness to, again, to revisit um, job seeker, you know, the unemployment benefit, mm. um, especially in the midst of the cost of living crisis. Um, there recently, um, you know, a couple of days, I think it was yesterday, where, what's today, Thursday? Yeah, it was yesterday uh, or the day before, you know, the government's announced that they're, they're wrapping up the, um, the uh, provision of free rat tests. Mm. Free rapid test, I should say, to concession card holders. Yeah, they're wrapping up the seven hundred seven hundred fifty dollars support payment for people who are testing positive with for COVID, but maintaining the seven day isolation window. Yeah, um, and their excuse is, oh, we're in a trillion dollars of debt. Um, the government made these agreements, so we're off scot free. They were the ones who are calling for free rat tests for everybody. Mm. They were the ones calling for strong concession payments. I don't think much has changed. We're still in the midst of, you know, where what is it, the BA5 wave or the BA4, BA5 yeah. wave, whatever it is, um, Omicron variant 623, it mm-hmm. feels like we're up to. So the situation hasn't changed necessarily. We're going into winter, well, mm. winter now, flu season, all that sort of stuff. So I don't think much has actually changed from when they were calling for those free rat- rapid tests across the entire population and yeah. no one's calling for that anymore. All people are saying that if we're going to have the, the seven-day isolation period, which is maybe it seems like it's the right thing to do, maybe we do need to keep those payments mm. and the concessions for rapid tests. Because really, at the end of the day, if people aren't going to get financial support and they're not going to be able to access rapid tests more freely, you know, they can still cost up to $15, $20 a pop. Yeah. People aren't going to test. 
people are going to things are going to transmit more. You're going to have less information, mm-hmm. uh, and those who are most at risk won't know that they've been exposed to COVID until it's until it's too late for them to access some of the antivirals, um, and then you have really poor public health outcomes. So, mm. I'm not saying that as an epidemiologist. I don't really know what I'm yeah. talking about, but I read an article or two. Yeah, but you know what I mean. Like it just yeah. seems like that's the natural. Um, so that's kind of disappointing. Now there's a few areas like that where. These are really strong Labor Party values and they're strong Catholic values mm. around the dignity of the human person and the preferential for the po- preferential option for the poor, supporting those who are outside of work, those who are homeless. Um, you know, we're not seeing good, strong housing policies that are trying to yeah. fix, you know, the housing issues. Um, all of these sorts of things, I'm, I'm a bit disappointed. So mm. I'd love to see the Labor Party maybe return to some of their roots on that and to really... Um, and, I mean, I'd like the Liberal Party to do that too, right? <laughs> I'm not just sort of going, this is Albo's fault, I'm not, you know. But, um, yeah, so that's what I would hope is that they might be able to actually um, to recover some of those more maybe Catholic social teaching-centred values yeah. that, that have been a tradition in the Labor Party over the, the last hundred years that that might reemerge in some way, shape or form. So, yeah. yeah. I'm really hopeful too for um, the referendum that we'll have on the mm. Uluru Summit to the Heart and an Indigenous vo- voice to Parliament. I'm really... Um, hopeful that that process can be, I guess, genuine um, and that it's not just like things coming from the top down, but that that is something that doesn't just institute um, a way of listening to Indigenous yeah. Australians in our governance, but instead comes from that mm. and it's the, an entirely involved process. Um, I think that that would be really good and that it has yeah. a lot of potential. Like there's a lot of things I think that have potential and I'm really desperately hopeful mm. <laughs> that um, that they can do the good that they could do. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the final thing for me would just be, you know, hopefully with a much more diverse parliament in terms of representation of, of Australia more broadly but also in different parties and mm. different independents and, and that sort of stuff, that what it will mean is that, you know, we'll have a parliament which probably works much better for the average Australian, that it's... That some of the ways that we have debates, some of the ways that legislation's passed, all that sort of stuff, can actually, you know, we can keep moving forward. Um, to use a, a former uh, election uh, jingle from twenty ten, um, that we can actually uh, have a parliament which which works a bit better. Mm. Um, that there's more integrity, uh, and part of that will be establishing some sort of integrity um, commission. Hopefully that's one that actually works and does the right thing. That it's it's not either too strict or is or too uh, loose and mm-hmm. too and too uh, malleable. Yeah, um, but we can actually have you know good decisions in government and good processes in the parliament and across all three branches of, of the government that can actually do what you know best for the little guy, but it is best for all of Australia really. Um, in a way which again promotes the common good and the dignity of the human person um, and and. Um, supports people to, to, to live their lives, really. Um, I think that would be great. So. Absolutely. Something like that, anyway. So We'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. We've set them a very big agenda. Yeah. Get to work, Abba. Let's go. <laughs> we, uh, we'll be grading you. We want to, uh, we'll give you a report card in Absolutely. 18 months' time. You can, you can see how you've gone. Yeah. Great. Well, that's, that's probably a good amount to, uh, to discuss. So, and that's the end of our uh, – it's a bladed end to our democracy season mm-hmm. – uh, season (laughs) thanks for coming on the journey with us all uh i think it shows a lot about what we can do when we come together when we actually dive into what kind of things are going to be impacting ordinary australians and i'm really looking forward to see what comes next yeah 
So I uh, hope you've enjoyed the ride. Hope, thank, hopefully you're all still I mean, if you're hearing us say this, you are listening. That makes a whole lot of sense. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening.